Hello, and welcome to the Calvary Chapel Southeast Podcast. Thanks for joining us for our study through the book of 2 Corinthians. This letter was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. In it, Paul gets very personal about his own shortcomings, and he comforts the believers in Corinth. But he also teaches us that by embracing our own weakness, we are able to experience God's strength. Grab your Bibles, and let's jump in. Good morning, church. Good morning. I'm, uh, I know a lot of you in this room, and I'm so glad I get to be here. I know a lot of you are probably a little bit confused. Normally, I stand over there. Today, I'm over here. But I think it's going to be a sweet time together. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here with Calvary Southeast. And you guys all just sat down. I feel really bad. I'm going to have you read the scripture and then stand back up with me for the read of it. So we're going to be turning to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 11 through 21. And if you guys would stand with me for the reading of God's word. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 11 through 21. So starting in verse 11, I have become foolish. You yourselves compel me. Actually, I should have been commended by you. For in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I'm a nobody. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. For in what respect were you treated as inferior to the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not become a burden to you? Forgive me this wrong. Here, for this third time, I'm ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden to you, for I do not seek what is yours, but you. For children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But be that as it may, I did not burden you myself. Nevertheless, crafty fellow that I am, I took you in by deceit. Certainly, I have not taken advantage of you. Though any of those, any of whom I have sent to you, have I? I urged Titus to go, and I sent the brother with him. Titus did not take advantage of you, did he? Did we not conduct ourselves in the same spirit and walk in the same steps? All this time, you've been thinking that we are defending ourselves to you. Actually, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ, and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I'm afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you to be not what I wish, and may be found by you to be not what you wish, that perhaps there will be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. I am afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you, and I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they have practiced. And you guys can go ahead and take a seat. So just a little bit about myself this morning. Um, I was born in Oregon. I've lived here my whole life. My wife and I, my beautiful wife down here, have been married for seven years. Six of those years have been spent here with you all. And we've had three children since moving to Portland and have another one due next month, which we are very excited for. See, there we go. Thank you. Honestly, you shouldn't be clapping for me. Clap for Danae. That's what it really comes down to. So um, I came to know Jesus when I was 16 years old. I grew up in a Christian household. But for my childhood, it was kind of this back and forth thing for me. Went through a season of rebellion, 
um, came to know, like I said, as a teener, teenager. But I think I had another type of grace experience when I was 22. At that time, I was at the end of my rope and had some type of nervous breakdown. And in that moment of my brokenness, I met the beauty of God's grace in a new way. And I've continued on that journey ever since. That being said, I'm a broken young man, and I'm aware of my own shortcomings. And when I spoke with Pastor Ryan a few months ago about sharing with you all, I saw this as an opportunity to care for the church in a different way. And I'm glad I get to do this today. Somebody asked a while back when there was like one of the family meetings, like, why doesn't Josh ever talk? Well, I've taught a few times on Wednesdays, but maybe today you'll realize why they haven't let me talk. So we'll figure it out. Here we go. So I want to share a story about myself and my wife. When we, when we first got married, we were living in Cannon Beach and loved our time there. How many of you are Cannon Beach goers? Yeah? Enjoy your time? That's, that's the place that we go to as a family pretty often. So we were living in Cannon Beach, and early on in marriage, I was working two jobs. Danae was finishing up school, so our schedules were fairly busy. And so whenever we could, we would try to reconnect and spend time together. So I got off work, uh, she got out of class, and we decided we were going to drive up to one of the viewpoints and just spend some time looking out over the ocean, you know, the beautiful ocean air, the night sky. So we're up there hanging out and having our reconnection time, and all of a sudden, uh, we see a flashlight in the distance walking towards our vehicle, which is, it's kind of etiquette to not walk towards somebody else's car and stuff, just, you know, when you're hanging out. So anyways, so we're hanging out, this car, or this guy starts walking towards us with a flashlight, and he hollers at me. He's like, hey, Jeff, is that you? And I'm like, no, Jeff, here, sorry, man. He's like, do you know Jeff? I was like, also don't know Jeff. And... He's like, well, my car broke down, and I'm trying to get down to Manzanita, where I live. And we're in Cannon Beach, about 14 miles. I'm like, sorry, I don't know, Jeff. I'm not going down to Manzanita, and I hope everything works out. Have a good night. And he's like walking up the highway, 10 o'clock at night. And so I look at Danae, I look at him, I look at Danae, I look at him. And for me, I'll preface this. Picking up hitchhikers was like practically a hobby I had before Danae and I got married. We lived 11 hours apart when we were dating, and I would pick up hitchhikers on I-5 to have somebody basically to talk to on the drive. So here we are, not recommending it. So um, here we are, and I look at Danae, I was like, we got to give this guy a ride. And either it was the Holy Spirit speaking to me or just my stupidity. And she's like, uh, okay. So she's pretty hesitant. I go, okay, guy, uh, we'll give you a ride down to Manzanita, and you'll just have to ride in the bed of the pickup and... We'll, we'll drive down. He's like, oh, thank you so much. So he climbs in the bed of the pickup, and we're driving down the road, and all of a sudden, I don't know if you guys have experienced this on the coast, but just coastal downpour. It's dumping. He's in the bed of the truck. I look at Danae. I look at him. I look at Danae. You know, we're back here. And so all of a sudden, I go, Danae, we got to let him sit in the truck. <laughs> and she's like, okay, trophy wife. And so... There's these small seats behind the passenger and driver's seat. I go, okay, you'll have to sit in one of these seats. We'll put him in the passenger seat. I'll keep an eye on him. It's all going to work out great. Pull over. It's dumping rain. I holler out the window. Hey, friend, uh, you go and climb up in the cab. And he's like, oh, thank you, thank you. So he climbs up in the cab with us. He's, he's soaked. We're driving down the road. And I'm just making small talk with him. Hey, where are you from? What kind of stuff do you enjoy doing? What are your hobbies? 
yada, 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 yada. All of a sudden, he gets very quiet, and he looks at me, and he goes, I have to be honest with you. I don't really have any hobbies or anything because I just got out of prison. <laughs> at this moment, I look in the rearview mirror, and Danae's eyes are the size of grapefruit. <laughs> and I didn't pull a classic, so are you in for it? Like, I just played it cool, and I'm like, oh, okay. So, you know, still kind of continue on the small talk. Well, all of a sudden, the Lord just put on my heart that this guy just needed to be ministered to. I could actually tell he was pretty down. So we're having this conversation, and, um, and I just brought up to him a little bit of my own story. And I was like, the Lord has worked in my life and ministered to me. And, and I think of this scripture often. If anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. And that's in 2 Corinthians. And so we drive down to Manzanita, and he gets out of the car. I wish him well. We part ways. I have not seen him since. Hopefully, we'll see him in eternity. But the reason I share that story is because the transformational work of Christ in broken lives is one of the threads throughout the book of 2 Corinthians, and something that, honestly, we'll look at today. And so... Um, Today, in the book, we're getting close to the end, and Paul planted the church. I want to do just a little recap. Paul planted the church in Acts 18. Paul wrote to them the book of 1 Corinthians, and he had to address issues and sins in the church. After that, he went to Corinth the second time, and this is known as his painful visit. And then here in 2 Corinthians, Paul encouraged the believers in the church that had repented. Next, he addressed them about giving an offering for the believers in Jerusalem. And now we are in a section where he is addressing the unrepentant minority in the Corinthian church. Earlier this month, Pastor Kevin spoke on the pure and simple devotion to the Lord and the attributes of a discerning disciple. And last week, Liam taught about Paul's contentment in his suffering. Paul defended his apostleship and opposed the most eminent apostles. Paul shared his revelation and vision of heaven. He went on to share that God gave him a thorn in the flesh. Paul boasted about his weakness. And Liam concluded with these three observations from that portion of Paul's letter. A true disciple is content with suffering. A true disciple is content with humility. A true disciple is content with weakness. And honestly, guys, didn't Liam and Kevin do such a great job this last month. We can give him a hand. Kevin's in here. Liam's in here. We can give him a hand. So like I said, in today's passage, Paul is addressing a group of believers in the church who are still unrepentant. So let's dive into the passage, starting in verse 11. And Paul says, I have become foolish. You yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you, for in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am a nobody. So why did Paul say, I have become foolish and you yourselves compelled me? He was speaking of his boasting and defending himself in the last few chapters. The Corinthian church forced Paul's hand, so he responded accordingly. He didn't want to spend so much time defending his ministry. He would have rather spoken of Jesus, but they were not interested in hearing about Jesus from him until he proved his credibility to them. Paul planted this church. And they were demanding that he give them letters of recommendation, which is completely ridiculous. In chapter 3, verses 2 and 4, Paul says, 
you yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. The transformed lives of the believers that Paul had ministered to were his letters of recommendation. Paul is saying that they should have been commended by, he should have been commended by them, but instead they were slandering him. Next, Paul addressed for the last and final time in 2 Corinthians and the the villains of this book, and he calls them the most eminent apostles. The word Paul used for eminent here is characterized by being beyond an extreme degree. The only place Paul uses this word in the New Testament is here and back in chapter 11, verse 5. And it's really just this complete over-exaggeration of who these guys are. He's, you know, this, and we call them, we'd say super apostles. I heard a commentator this week say, Paul's calling them the super duper apostles. And so he's really kind of jabbing at them even by saying this. And interesting because there are many adversaries who are against the gospel in the New Testament, such as the Pharisees and the Judaizers as well. Jesus' adversaries were the Pharisees, the religious leaders. And then in Paul's letters to a few other of the churches, Paul had to address the Judaizers as well. These were individuals speaking a different gospel, saying that a believer must still conform to certain parts of the Jewish ceremonial law. Paul even had to call out Peter by name for falling into their incorrect thinking. But here, Paul had to speak against a different type of falsehood. These self-proclaimed super apostles were more nuanced in their deceit and appealed to the entertainment and charisma culture of Corinth. And also, as Pastor Ryan has pointed out, just really the pointing out strength and power. And, and so, but they were not willing to repent or change. So Paul considered these super apostles as enemies of the church. Back in chapter 11, verse 13, Paul called them false apostles. And if that was enough, he called them the messengers of Satan. David Guzik said, it wasn't so much that the presence of the most eminent apostles bothered Paul. It was their influence among the Corinthian Christians that bothered the true apostle. Paul's concern was for the church. So continuing on in verse 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. So they saw the glory of God displayed through Paul, but even this did not convince them. These were signs to the churches of Paul's true apostleship. Paul did signs and wonders in almost every town he visited in the book of Acts. Something to note is that the message of the gospel was always shared first. Then the signs and wonders followed, not the other way around. Paul wasn't running a sideshow. He wasn't saying, come see Paul's signs and wonders, poisonous snake handling tonight, Something else that we should take note of is that Paul brought this up as a last line of defense. Signs and wonders can be used to deceive without being in conjunction with the gospel. And speaking of the Antichrist coming, Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 2.9, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. So signs and wonders can be used to deceive without being attached to the truth. And that is why the message of the gospel must always be central in our lives. The message of the gospel was always at the center of Paul's ministry. The signs and wonders only verified the gospel message. So continue in verse 13. For in what respect were you treated as inferior to the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not become a burden to you? Forgive me this wrong. 
Here, for this third time, I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden to you, for I do not seek what is yours but you. Paul, once again, is sarcastic with them, saying, sorry, I didn't burden you. And interesting, because the Corinthian culture was actually very wealthy. Paul easily could have asked for financial support from them, but he wanted them to know that he didn't have ulterior motives. Paul decided that he would not become a burden to them so that this would not become a stumbling block. Also, to counter the financial demands of the super apostles. So what was Paul truly after? Well, he says at the end of verse 14, for I do not seek what is yours, but you. The New Living Translation says it this way. I don't want what you have. I want you. And this separated Paul from the super apostles. The super apostles were after what they could get from the church. In contrast, Paul was seeking what he could give to the church. And this is a moment we should pay particular attention to. Paul instructed the church by saying, follow me as I follow Christ. And in 1 Corinthians 11, that's when he said that, the believer is not only following the words of Paul, but also the example. So here in verse 14, he is setting a pattern for the church in us today. He is saying that he is concerned about loving others well, giving to them, not taking from them. And this is the response of a healthy follower of Jesus. In health, as we receive the love of others and allow the Father to pour his love into us, we can give it away. I heard this story of a gal who did a trip. It was a tropical scuba diving trip. And by the way, I'm just going to say right now, I know nothing about scuba diving. I heard this story. I'm just going to relay it to you because I think it makes sense and I'll bring it around. But um, so this gal does this trip. She took like a short three-hour class on scuba diving and then she got paired up with somebody else. And so she's out, you know, scuba diving, swimming around, seeing the fish, whatever else you do while you're scuba diving, having a great time. And suddenly the guy that she got paired up with, his tank malfunctioned or something started malfunctioning with his mask so he was not getting air. And so in the panic of the moment, what he decided to do is he had no air, she had air, and so he started trying to actually rip the mask off of her face to get it onto himself. This gal had never seen this guy before, so she's like, get away from me, creepy guy. And, you know, this little thing happens. Well, apparently his masks start working, they float back up to the surface, everything worked out. Um, I don't think they ever talked again. But anyways, so the, the reason I want to bring this up is if our own tank is not full, we'll try to take from those around us. If we're not spiritually healthy and are not receiving the Father's grace and the love of those around us, then in the sickness of our souls, all we can do is take. We'll end up hurting the people we have been entrusted to care for. And then also, Paul said, when Paul said, I don't want what you have, I want you, we see that Paul had the heart of Jesus. Jesus is saying, I don't want your stuff, I want you. And how many times do we get this mixed up? We think that Jesus wants us to do more or try more or be the best for God or whatever pithy statement we put behind it. But in reality, God wants us. He wants to know us. He wants to have a relationship with us. Let's continue in verse 14. For children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. 
I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? Paul continues to speak of his love for them, liking it to how a parent cares for their children. Matthew Henry said about Paul in this section, he would gladly spend and be spent for them. That is, he was willing to take pains and to suffer loss for their good. He would spend his time, his parts, his strength, his interest, his all, to do them service. Nay, so spend as to be spent, and be like a candle which consumes itself to give light to others. Paul loved them and was willing to give everything for them to see that they were built up in Christ. He says he is glad to be spent for them. Paul loved this church and had the true heart of a minister. And at the end of verse 15, I believe we see a window into Paul's humanity when he says, if I love you more, am I to be loved less? The New Living says, it seems that the more I love you, the less you love me. At the end of Paul's ministry, when he wrote 2 Timothy, you can tell how he was writing that Paul was discouraged And here I think we see his humanity as well. Sometimes we can think of the biblical authors, such as Paul, as sterile, like nothing affected them. But we have to be reminded that these were real people who had many of the same struggles and feelings that we have. It's as if Paul is saying, I don't, don't you see that I love you? And yet the way you respond hurts me. And feeling hurt is this healthy response when someone offends us. In the same way that physical pain is a signal that something is wrong with our body and needs to be addressed, emotional pain is a signal that we need to address something relationally or mentally that is out of order. How we respond to hurt will change the outcome. Bitterness exaggerates our brokenness and makes us more likely to become hurt again. So the cycle will continue unless addressed. And last week, Liam pointed out how Paul refused to become bitter. And Paul wrote in Ephesians 4, 31 through 32, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. Experiencing the forgiveness of Christ and addressing the individuals who have caused the pain is a healthy response. Paul set an example for the Corinthians to follow by confronting those who wronged them and avoiding division caused by pain. So let's pick up in verse 16. But be that as it may, I did not burden you myself. Nevertheless, crafty fellow that I am, I took you in by deceit. Certainly I have not taken advantage of you through any of those whom I have sent to you, have I? I urged Titus to go, and I sent the brother with him. Titus did not take advantage of you, did he? Did we not conduct ourselves in the same spirit and walk in the same steps? So Paul uses some sarcasm again in this portion. Nevertheless, crafty fellow that I am, I took you in by deceit. And it's kind of interesting because I was, I was listening to a commentator this week, actually, and he was saying that sometimes people actually rip this out of context and say that this is Paul basically giving permission to be dishonest for the sake of the gospel, and completely wrong, completely wrong interpretation of this. He's actually just using sarcasm in this moment. And then he goes on asking, where's your proof? Where's your proof that I have ulterior motives? So the individuals are saying uh, that he has ulterior motives. What could the motives be? First, I wasn't a financial burden to you, and 
all the people I sent to you asked for nothing. He goes on to speak of Titus by name, and Paul says, I sent another brother with him. They also were not a burden to the Corinthian church. So what proof did they have for these accusations that Paul had ill motives? Well, the super apostles were the ones planting all the seeds of doubt about Paul, possibly saying things like, yeah, Paul is taking up a collection for the church in Jerusalem, but as soon as he gets out of town, he use it for himself. So why do the super apostles doubt his motives? because they had ulterior motives themselves. If we don't have a clear conscience, we think that everyone else has the same bad motives that we do. Someone said, the ones who are the most suspicious of others are the ones we should be the most suspicious of. And it's, this is just coming out because it's like, man, they have all this in the back of their mind, like, oh, we have these bad motives. So of course Paul does, Paul's after their money. It's not true. Paul loved the church. So let's continue on in verse 19. All this time, you've been thinking that we are defending ourselves to you. Actually, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ, and all for your upbuilding, beloved. Why would Paul say this? Paul was saying, God sees my work. He knows my heart. It's almost the equivalent of being under oath. God had shined a light on Paul, and Paul had a clear conscience. He also went on to clarify that it was for the strengthening of the church. Verse 20, for I'm afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you to be not what I wish and may be found by you to be not what you wish. Say that 10 times fast. That perhaps there will be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. So why would Paul say he was afraid? Well, based on the context of what he just said, he was concerned for them. He was concerned for their well-being. And what was he afraid of? Well, the new living phrases his words this way. I won't like what I find, and you won't like my response. Then he lists out the relational tensions that were going on. And I like to take just a few moments to look at these. So the first one is strife, which means seeking superiority over others and then jealousy, desiring the lifestyle or possessions of another individual. Also, as Pastor Kevin said a few weeks ago, it is better described as envy, angry tempers. I'm glad that Paul addressed this because this is truly an issue in the church, and Paul is not addressing righteous anger here. Look at the context of everything else he mentions. These individuals were self-seeking and were angry because they were not getting their way. Many times, as believers, we can justify our anger too quickly, turning ourselves into saints and justifying our actions. We compare ourselves to Jesus, flipping over the tables and say, see, Jesus got angry and expressed himself. But we must remember that Jesus was never in the flesh. Jesus was carrying out the Father's will. Next, Paul brings up disputes, slander, and gossip. Slander and gossip, this is described as degrading someone else. And speaking behind their back, I'm sure none of us have ever experienced anything like that before. And I think this can be, honestly, one of the best indicators of a person's spiritual immaturity and lack of health. And I can think of, even in my own life, when I'm speaking ill of others, it's like, man, what's going on inside of me? What's happening inside of me? I remember, actually, when I was in college, there was one night we were hanging out in the dorm room, and one of the guys was getting ready to move off of campus and kind of go do his own thing. And myself and some of the other guys were like, man, what an idiot. Why would he leave campus? He's just, this is the dumbest decision, all this stuff. 
Well, one of our roommates in our little, you know, huddle there in our dorm room was like, this is not okay. And he called us all out. He basically like yelled at each one of us. He's like, you're slandering, you're gossiping. What are you saying when I'm not around? And he went off on us. And then as soon as he left, I was like, he's totally right. He's totally right. Why am I degrading him? There was, there was nothing that I had reason to do it. So when I hear someone tear others down around them, I think to myself, what insecurity is that individual dealing with that they feel the need to belittle others? And I'd like to just take a short detour to point out how insecurities can actually change a person. And I think that can be a lot of the motivator behind why we slander people, why we gossip. So this year, while reading the book of 1 Samuel, um, something stood out to me about King Saul that I never noticed before. So early on, when the Bible mentioned Saul, and he is about to get anointed as king of Israel, Saul was afraid, and he kept saying, I come from the smallest family in the smallest tribe. And it seems like this very humble phrase. But after he doesn't carry out God's instructions, the prophet Samuel has to confront Saul. And Samuel said, though you're little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribe of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And it's as if Saul thought he was a nobody and it wouldn't really matter what he did. But God had expectations on him regardless of his insecurities. So you see, insecurity is not a sin, but it can lead us to sin. It can lead us into sins like gossip. It can lead us into sins like slander and bringing those down around us. And insecurity is like pride because it puts the focus on us and attempts to make us feel better about ourselves by tearing others down. Next, Paul moves on to arrogance, then disturbances in disorderly behavior. Paul is concerned that they are actually even causing a scene in public So this goes hand in hand with the outburst of anger he mentioned. And as you may notice, this list addressed sins against others. And let me be clear, these are sins. All of the previous issues stated can often get brushed under the rug and thought of as minor sins. Also notice that these are not sins outside the church, but sins from within the church. So what are these sins? Why are these sins such a big deal? Well, because they cause division. And discord among God's children is something that breaks the Father's heart. Both the Old and New Testament authors are clear. In Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 says, There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that make haste to run to evil. A false witness who breathes out lies. And here's this one, and it's in this list and one who sows discord among brothers. So why is this an issue? Because the Lord loves and values unity. And unified living under the banner of Jesus is a better way to live. Every one of us in this room has a different experience with the church. And I've heard people say things like, I love God, I just can't stand his people It's not a question of if you'll experience hurt. It's a question of when. Phrases like church split or toxic environment can trigger painful memories. And all of these sins that Paul listed only fuel the fire that is trying to consume the body of Christ. All of these sins we just looked at are relational sins that are damaging to other individuals in the Christian community. They were external signs of an illness in the heart 
of those he was talking to. Next, Paul goes on to address sins at the individual level, also known as sins of the flesh. So let's go on to verse 21. And Paul says, I'm afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you, and I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they have practiced. So why does he say he's afraid that my God may humiliate me? Because if these people are the testimony that gives him credibility, then their sinful lives are a blemish on his credentials. He turns their argument on its head. They were saying Paul was the source of his lack of credibility, but he is saying if they're unrepentant, then they are the blemish on his credibility. Paul was broken over the thought of those who may be living in habitual sin, and he says, I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented. This is a sign of a healthy leader. When a leader is broken over the sins of the people they lead, we know this is the heart of a shepherd. Also notice, he isn't bringing up forgiven sins of the past. Notice what he says, who have sinned in the past and not repented. And this is key. Why? Because the repentant person who desires to be free from the rebellion is distinctly different from the person who celebrates their sin. There is no need to look at past sins that have already been forgiven. It is not the heart of the Father to keep going back and looking at our past sins. Paul then shines a light on the current sins of these select individuals in the church. Impurity, immorality, and sensuality, which they have practiced. Corinth was this sexually charged culture, and these individuals in the church allowed these sins to creep in. Sins in the life of a believer are symptoms and outward signs of what is going on within. So what would cause a believer to sin habitually as seen in verse 21? These individuals practiced their sins and were unrepentant. This was not a one-time thing. As I prepared and meditated on verses 20 and 21, I landed on that there are primarily four motivators for us as believers to be in sin and just to practice sin or habitually be in sin. And the first reason is that we believe that Christ is insufficient to meet the deepest needs or deepest desires of our lives, and we have grown to love our sin. The second reason is that we believe that God has the ability to meet our needs and satisfy our desires, but he chooses to withhold what is truly good for us. And the third reason is we convince ourselves that we are not sinning at all. This is not a problem. And the fourth reason is that when we are experiencing some form of pain from our past or whatever it may be, we try to numb the pain through self-medicating with sin. And some would call this like root issues. So I want to take just a little bit of time. I don't want to soapbox this, but at the same time, I think it needs to be addressed. Kind of what this digression looks like. And what even Paul was addressing Corinth to some level. So here's the initial sin that is done by a believer. And I think, there we go. After we sin, if we are walking with the Spirit, we'll next experience guilt. And this is something that God places inside of us to give us orientation that we have done something wrong. Contrary to what many believe, guilt is not a bad thing. If we sense guilt when we first offend someone or when we are in rebellion toward God, this is a healthy sign that our conscience is intact and the Holy Spirit is able to speak 
into our lives. Many would also call this conviction. In contrast, guilt not properly dealt with is extremely unhealthy and ultimately damaging to our lives. Paul said earlier in 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 10, as it is, I rejoice, not because you are grieved, but because you are grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So what happens if we don't deal with guilt properly? Well, it leads to self-hatred. And this is really ultimately just beating ourselves up um, over the mistakes we made, saying, I can't believe I did this. And this really just spiraling in our own minds. Next in the digression is shame. Guilt is the inner voice that says, I've done something wrong. Shame is the inner voice that says, I am something wrong. No one could ever love me if they know who I really am. I'm unworthy of love. I've messed up. This is unforgivable. And because of the crushing weight of shame, many times we'll end up trying to self-medicate to cover up the feeling of shame by returning to sin. Author Reed Jepsen said, sin offers itself as a friend, then becomes a fiend. What can we do about sin? It creeps silently into our lives and leads us where we do not want to go, yet we seem powerless to drive it away. It has been said, sin will take us further than we ever want to go, keep us longer than we want to stay, and cost us more than we want to pay. I heard the story of a girl, and this will be a short story. Don't worry, guys. Um, I heard the story of a girl who was really into reptiles. I'm not into reptiles. She was into reptiles. But she got a large snake. She must have been a small woman. Got a large snake, and it's like a boa constrictor or something like that. This was her pet snake. Loved the snake. Cared for the snake. Fed the snake. Whatever you feed snakes. And uh, apparently, they really bonded. Well, she has this pet snake, and all of a sudden, they reached the point of their relationship or whatever that, um, or just time that she actually let the snake start sleeping in her bed. Super weird. I'm just going to say that out loud. Super weird. And so snake is sleeping in her bed. Well, all of a sudden the snake stops eating all of a sudden. And so she takes to the vet. She's like, my snake's not eating. What's going on with my beloved snake? The vet's like, have you changed anything in the snake's lifestyle? Has anything changed? She's like, no, nothing's changed. Everything's the same. She's like, okay, well, you know, snake doesn't start eating in the next couple of weeks. Bring it back in. We'll figure this out. So all of a sudden, week goes on. Snake's still not really eating. She brings snake back in. Vet's like, has nothing changed in the snake's lifestyle? And the girl's like, no, nothing's changed. This is, you know, nothing. She's like, are you sure? She's like, there's one, like, small little detail. And uh, the vet's like, oh, yeah, well, what is it? She's like, well, I actually let the snake start sleeping in my bed with me. And it, like, lays along my back. And the vet goes, Really? And she goes, yes. She's like, that's why the snake has stopped eating. And once again, I don't know about snakes. I heard this story. I'm just sharing with you all. Apparently, the snake was sizing the girl up, seeing if it could eat her. That's what was happening. It was trying to see if it could consume her. Reason I bring this up is in the same way, sin is not our friend. It wants to consume us. Also, let's just acknowledge, weird story. I'm just going to throw it out there. But some of us in this room 
are saying about our sin, I've tried to stop and I just can't. And sadly, this is the point when sin management comes in and our mantra becomes try harder and we end up doing everything we can to hide our sin and to make it look tidy. We serve more, do more, and try harder to prove our worth to God, and it becomes a never-ending session of behavioral management 101. And without the cycle being broken, a person can come to the point of self-acceptance of sin, which eventually leads to what Paul calls the conscience being seared with a hot iron. So why do I bring this all up? Yes, maybe the group that was living in Corinth and in that church convinced themselves that their sin was not a problem and their sin was not a sin at all. But maybe there were also those caught in this guilt and shame cycle that Paul was reminding there is a way out. I believe some of us in this room may be caught in this cycle today. It's not enough to know that there's a problem or even the root issues although both need to be addressed. We need to know a better way of living. In the middle of the mess that we've created, God steps in and extends to us grace. Oh, beautiful grace. The hymn writer Julia H. Johnson wrote in 1910, marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the lamb was spilt. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all of our sin. When grace comes in, it gives the invitation to repentance. Grace is given and repentance is offered we just have to receive it. I was recently reading a novel in Tal Bo's Cafe, and the story follows a man named Stephen who wrecked his life due to his anger caused by unresolved life issues. In the story, Stephen meets a man named Andy who gives him life advice, and here's what Andy says about repentance. Repentance is admitting you can't do anything about your failure. It's not just agreeing you've done something wrong. It's admitting you can't do what needs to be done to make it right. God waits and yearns for that moment with everything in him. When we accept the gift of grace and repentance, we experience freedom and restoration. Reed Jepson said, God's truth is so wonderful. It deals with sin, breaks its power in our lives, and ultimately destroys it altogether. We are infected with the leprosy of sin, yet the great physician heals us, making our hearts as pure and white as new fallen snow. We are captured as slaves in the marketplace of sin, yet the Redeemer purchases our souls from the bondage we have known and sets us free to live for him. Paul wanted the Corinthian church to experience the freedom of Jesus. Paul wanted them to be honest about themselves. In verse 19, he said, we stand in the sight of God. He's saying God sees everything. The light has shined on his life and Paul had a clear conscience. He wanted the Corinthian church to let the light shine on them to expose what was there. In chapter 13, I'll give just a little sneak peek, but in chapter 13, verse 10, he says, I am writing this to you before I come, hoping that I won't need to deal severely with you when I do come. For I want to use the authority the Lord has given me to strengthen you, not to tear you down. 
Paul was willing to deal with the sin in the church head on and be severe when he arrived, as we'll see more in chapter 13, but he wanted to be gentle with them. His heart was to care for them. So how does Paul, or I apologize, how does God bring healing into our lives? And I just want to point this out because I think it really just wraps up this chapter well. Through receiving the Father's love and forgiveness, through laying down our sins before him, through trusting others with our brokenness by confession, and through seeking reconciliation from others. See, Paul addressed these relational tensions, and then he also had to address the individual sin that was happening within the church. Warren Wearsby said that sin is like cancer, and it can't live in the body of Christ. It has to be taken out. And so this is something that it's like, man, we don't want to take it lightly. We want to address this, but simultaneously realizing that God offers grace. He offers his grace to us daily, and if we're caught in sin, he offers grace to us today. So if you need to pray with someone today to address brokenness in your own life, here in just a few moments, there will be people up here on the right and the left who would love to pray with you. If this is maybe a day of confession of brokenness in your own life, this could be the time, this could be the place to do it. Thanks for listening. If you're ever in the Portland area, we would love to have you visit us for one of our services. For service times, location, or even just to learn more about the ministry of Calvary Southeast, you can visit our website at ccseportland.com. We hope you've been blessed by this week's teaching. Join us next week as we continue in our study together.